following radio programs are original broadcasts. While enhancements have been made to the audio for clarity and listener enjoyment, no other edits or modifications have been made. The listener may hear advertisements and notices for tobacco products, alcohol, food, and or services that may no longer be available, nor are they endorsed by whose blind life is it anyway. Listener discretion is advised. Good afternoon, everybody. How are y'all doing today? This is Pepsi Mama welcoming you to another edition of the Afternoon Radio Theater Sunday. And that is Sunday like an ice cream sundae. And for those of you who are listening for the first time, oh, and we, but we also call it arts. Uh, it's the acronym for it, so. Uh, if you hear us talking about arts, you'll know we're talking about the Afternoon Radio Theater Sunday, S-U-N-D-A-E. And so while I'm in here, uh, somewhere during the show, I start to create my little Sunday uh, each week. It's I'm not doing it for real. Uh, but um, if I do that, it's fun. It's just a fun thing to do in the show and then uh, it kind of keeps me from wanting so much ice cream and stuff during the week <laughs> uh, am I fooling myself well I guess no maybe not because uh, I don't have any ice cream right now but <laughs> uh, but anyway uh, we'll get the house clean out of the way get the chores done we'll start out by saying we hope you like what you hear and you can subscribe to us on YouTube at our Who's Blind Life Is It Anyway channel. You can subscribe to Facebook, Who's Blind Life Is It Anyway. And you can do the same with, oh, at when you follow us on Twitter, you can follow us at Blind Who's, W-H-O-S-E. And so those are three ways you can hear us and you can also uh, follow subscribe to our uh, podcast Whose Blind Life Is It Anyway and uh, you can find that on just about any kind of podcast player you want to mention um, Spotify Google, Apple QCast um, you can even Tell Lady A to play Whose Blind Life Is It Anyway, and she'll play until you tell her to stop or until she runs out of podcasts on that channel. So there you have it. But anyway, oh, um, I'm trying to think. Oh, yeah, if you want to email me, um, with suggestions, comments, gripes, grumbles, anything, uh, you can email me at afternoon radio theater Sunday at gmail.com. So there you have, <clears throat> there you have it. Today, what I'm doing for you is shows that have the word crime in the title. Um, I wanted to find some that had crime in the episode title, and and I'm sure that I could 
except that uh, I had to kind of cut it short so the podcast or so the program wouldn't be so long. But uh, the first one that I'm going to do for you is uh, the terrible deed of Mr. Webster. And he was wicked. So, oh, this, it's from Crime Classics. I think I said that, but I'm not sure, folks. Uh, so, anyway, um, I like Crime Classics because it's, it's, it's historical. And, uh, most of the programs tend to be from, you know, way back in 17 or 1800s. And, uh, well, even further back than that, cause they did one on, one of them is, uh, on Julius Caesar. So, uh, but that was a good show. I wish they had done a lot more of them, but, um, maybe I'll find some more. Kick back and enjoy it, and I'll be right back with you. Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Highland. I'm going to tell you another true crime story. Listen. The man in the striped pants and red galluses and celluloid collar is Master of Arts and Doctor of Medicine at Harvard University, as well as Irving, Professor of Chemistry and Mineralogy at this institution. Quite an educated man, a scholar. He has just turned on the faucet for a reason. He has just dissected a colleague, and he needs to wash away the blood. This is Thanksgiving week in the year 1849. The dissector's name, John W. Webster. The dissectees, George Parkman. Dr. Webster has just committed murder, because Dr. Parkman was a stubborn man to the very end. And tonight... My report to you on the terrible deed of John White Webster and his crime that shocked the nation. Crime Classics. A series of true crime stories taken from the records and newspapers of every land from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now once again, Thomas Highland. The place is the Massachusetts Medical College on Grove Street in Boston in the year 1849. The college was a three-story building, the top two floors of which were reserved as offices and studies for the faculty. Dr. Webster occupied two high-ceilinged rooms on the second floor, just below the suite occupied by Oliver Wendell Holmes. On the afternoon of November 23, Dr. Webster had a visitor a man much taller and heavier than him, a man of scholastic bearing, a man whose spectacle ribbon touched lightly his mutton-chop whiskers. His name, Dr. George Parkman, doctor, lecturer, creditor, a man with a purpose. I want my money. You'll get it. When? When I've got it. I must tell you something, Dr. Webster. Oh, can't you just drink your tea and enjoy the afternoon? No? Very well, then. 
Tell me something, Dr. Parkman. You're a dishonest man. Lovely autumn afternoon. A cheat. No surgery to do. A thief who beguiles his friends. I'm not only speaking for myself, you know. You mean you've been commissioned by my other creditors to come here and insult me? Now, Doctor, can't we just chat? Of course we can. Gentleman to gentleman, doctor to doctor, of course we can. Lemon, sugar, money. And what to chat about? Hmm, I know. In surgery yesterday morning, a most peculiar thing... You're an amazing man, Dr. Webster. You combine your great skill with being a great rascal. Oh, come now. I lent you $450 as mortgage on your property. And you turn around and mortgage it again. Someone else for $600. How can you do such a thing? Quite simply. I need a sum of $1,000 and my property is not worth that much. Good day, Doctor. Dr. Parkman. Yes? Are you going to the police? Yes. To disgrace me? I don't care about the results. I do. Dr. Parkman. Don't plead with me. Of course not. I've something in the kitchen I want to give you. It's about time. Quite. I should not have waited this long. Come along. Dr. Parkman, you couldn't give me an extension of a few weeks Certainly on... not. Certainly not. Just give me my money now. <gasps> I have no money to give you. And you want to disgrace me. And I see no other way. Don't be a fool. No other way. (laughs) And so Dr. Webster killed Dr. Parkman. And, as I have indicated, Dr. Parkman died hard. At this precise time, the murderer must have observed several moments of contemplation and reflection on what he had done. To consider it, to assess it, and being an intelligent man, an evaluation of the mess he had gotten himself into. Such moments of intimate musings we cannot know, nor as gentlefolk should we intrude upon. So, give Dr. Webster his moments and let us perform a superficial examination upon the man biographically. I have here a copy of the Boston Herald of the day. It gives Dr. Webster a neat spread on the front page and says, among other things, this. He was born in Boston about the year 1788. He came from a family of considerable wealth and respectability. He received a most liberal education and adopted the profession of medicine. In 1833, he visited the gay metropolis of Paris, France, and afterwards went to the Azores. In 1837... He was elected Irving Professor in the University at Cambridge, Massachusetts. When his father died, he inherited (laughs) $40,000. I would just like to depart from the paper for a moment to tell you that when he inherited this money, eggs were 12 cents a dozen. $40,000 which he wasted, which he threw heedlessly away into the vortex of fashionable life. Money went, debts came, and so on. Nothing novel. Money went, debts came. So did a wife and two children. So, having given Dr. Webster his moments, back to him now and observe him. Instrument of death still in hand. <laughs> 
pale, still laboring for breath. Suddenly, a murderer. Instrument of death, no longer in his hand, but no less a murderer. Dr. Webster? Well, I... I'm here. You haven't forgotten, have you? Uh, what? The tea. You said come to tea. Oh, yes, 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 I remember. Well, aren't you going to ask me in? Uh, no. But you said come to tea, and you said you would sell me a ticket to your lectures. Oh, I'm sorry. Come in, come in. Sit down, my dear. Oh, you were teasing. The tea things are all ready, and you've, you've already poured. Miss Montgomery, my dear. Yes, Doctor? Drink your tea, and the tickets are five dollars for three lectures. I know how much the tickets are. And you know what? What? You've forgotten the cream. I know where the cream is in the kitchen. Uh, Miss Montgomery? Yes, Doctor, dear? You don't want tea, do you? Not really. Then pay for your tickets and get out. Are you serious? Yes. Well, there will be a vacant seat in the front row for your next three lectures. Goodbye. Mr. Littlefield. Uh, Mr. Littlefield, I said... Ha I heard what you said, Doctor. How are you? All right. And how are things with you, Mr. Littlefield? Yeah. What do you mean, Doctor? Well... Uh, in the janitoring line, you mean? Uh, that's right. Well, it's the same as it's been for the last seven years. Janitoring in a medical college like this, things don't change much. Oh, I see. One day... Is... Just like yesterday... Except today. Oh? You did something strange today. How could... You came down here in the basement and talked to me today. First time in seven years you've done more than say hello to me. Oh, I am sorry. I've been rude. Yeah. You're a doctor. So many things on your mind. Hmm. Uh, I'd like for you to help me with something, Mr. Littlefield. What? Well... If you were to play a prank on someone, hide something from someone so that someone would never find what you hid, <laughs> where would you hide it? You mean around here? Yes. Oh, lots of places. Just a minute, I'll look to the furnace and I'll be glad to help you. Uh, need some coal. The furnace? Huh? It, it needs some coal. I just said that, Doctor. Yeah, no. I'll be glad to show you some nice hiding places, Doctor. Come on along. Yeah. What are you figuring on hiding? Now, that would be telling, wouldn't it? Big? Small? Oh, kind of like this? Medium, huh? Yes, I would say so. Fine. Just follow me, Doctor. <laughs> Doctor? 
Here's where I come whenever one of you doctors tells me to store his old records. Hmm. It's a large room, isn't it? Let's go inside. Here in the attic, no one ever disturbs these old storage crates. Huh? Oh, time for me to be going home, Dr. Webster. A few more places, Mr. Littlefield. so forth. A lot of places, good hiding places, rarely visited, if ever. So Dr. Webster shook the hand of Ephraim Littlefield, thanked him, and bade him good night. Don't talk, Doctor. Don't mention it. And Dr. Webster went back to his apartment on the second floor of the building. No melodrama. The body of Dr. Parkman was still on the kitchen floor, and there was work to do. Light the candles, turn on the faucet, and get to work. Man at work. Dr. John W. Webster, Master of Arts, Doctor of Medicine, Surgeon. Dr. Webster by candlelight. Finish making the tour, downstairs, upstairs, further upstairs, the attic. At two o'clock in the morning, and so forth, work done. And the next morning, about ten, according to the records. Good morning, Mr. Littlefield. Good morning, Doctor. How are you? Same as yesterday. Well, tomorrow's Thanksgiving, isn't it? Same as last year. So, what are you planning to do to celebrate? Same as everybody else. Dinner? Oh, sure. At home? Uh, here is something for you, Mr. Littlefield. Why? Oh, go on, take it. It's ten dollars. Well. <coughs> well, thank you, Doctor. And I want you to buy a nice fat turkey and everything that goes with it. I certainly will. I, uh, <coughs> thank you again, Doctor. And uh, very much. Happy Thanksgiving, Mr. Littlefield. Happy Thanksgiving, Doctor. shook hands again and bade each other goodbye again. And the Thanksgiving season was upon them. listening to Crime Classics and your host, Thomas Hyland. Moliere wrote a delightful comedy about a man who was not a doctor, but whose wife kept telling everybody he was. It's a physician in spite of himself. 
Hear it later tonight on the Summer Theater with screen actor Robert Young in the starring role. Remember, it's the Summer Theater on most of these same CBS radio stations later tonight. And now once again, Thomas Highland and the second act of Crime Classics and his report to you on the terrible deed of Dr. Webster. Let's talk about Boston for a moment, a city of genteel culture and tradition. And in 1849, the bookstores were advertising a cultural tome entitled The Runaway Wife, A Tale of Intrigue and Passion. And during the Thanksgiving week, Boston was enjoying the festival that it had practically invented. Here and there in Boston, a man named Dr. George Parkman was missed. But to take his place in the minds of men was celery, turkey, oysters, pumpkin pie, and quince. I would like to add parenthetically that Dr. Parkman was dead, and the only person who was sure of this fact was Dr. Webster, his killer. The same Dr. Webster who at this moment, cold steel in hand, carves surgically from the turkey's sternum and passes then the second helping of white meat to Mrs. Webster. Now you may pass your mother the celery, Mary Ann. Martha? Yes, dear? The oyster stuffing is succulent. Oh, thank you, dear. You and I and the children, we have much to be thankful for. You're a kind husband, that's why. You provide. Pass the squash. Mary Ann, pass your father the squash. Hmm. I'll get it. Yes, sir? Good afternoon, Doctor. I'm so sorry to disturb you. Yes, what is it? Well, I'm from the police, sir. Cliver. Daniel Cliver. Oh, please come in. Well, I see you're having your Thanksgiving dinner. I don't want to disturb you. Oh, do come in. Come in. Won't you join us? Well, thank you, no, sir. What, uh, what may I do for you? Is Dr. Parkman here? He, uh, seems to be missing from his usual haunts. Oh, John. Uh, Dr. Parkman is missing from his usual haunts. And I thought you might give us some information as to his whereabouts. Me? Two days ago, he was seen going into your study at the college. Two days ago. Two days ago, that would be Tuesday. No. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Tuesday, he visited with me and we had tea. Stayed for perhaps uh, an hour and then left. You're sure of that, Doctor? Well, sir, in situations where it is important to be certain... Physicians such as I can be counted on to respond with accuracy. Well, uh, Tuesday, Mr. Cliver. Since that time, I have not seen Dr. Parkman. Will you have some sherry? Thank you, sir. No, I... I'm sorry I disturbed you, sir. Dr. Parkman not seen in his usual haunts? I wonder where he can be. I can't imagine. Marianne, pass the yams. Homey scene in Boston, Thanksgiving Day, 1849. Typical festive scene, and I suppose typical too. 
for Boston men whose deeds of murder are two days old. And janitors have holidays, too, and families and groaning boards. Mr. Littlefield, for example, in his small brick house in Cambridge, near the college. Uh, care for more dark meat, Mrs. Littlefield? No, don't mind if I do. Yeah, there you are. Juiciest bird we've ever had to table. Juiciest. What did you say, Mrs. Littlefield? Juiciest. You know, Mrs. Littlefield, it still worries me. About the turkey? The sudden generosity of Dr. Webster. I, uh, it, it bothers me. Why he should have given me the money for this dinner. Eat, Ephraim. Thinking is a bad sauce for a tasty dish. Still, a man who hasn't spoken a civil word to me in seven years to give me a gift and to ask me of hiding places. Eat, Ephraim. And the thing now, Dr. Parkman, each year for the last seven at Thanksgiving time, he hands me a dollar. This year, he did not. I haven't seen him. Not for two days now. I wonder... What you imagining? Mrs. Littlefield? Yes? i better speak to people. That's what. Right, Dr. Jackson. Me and my wife were talking it over. And I'm happy you came to me, Mr. Littlefield. Yeah, kind of putting one and one together we were over Dr. Webster's turkey, so to speak, if you know what I mean. I know very well what you mean. Dr. Webster's asking about those hiding places. And uh, Dr. Parkman's disappearance, both happening at the same time. One and one together, I say. What do you think, Doctor? Time for action, Mr. Littlefield. Let's call on Dr. Bigelow, and the three of us will seek an answer. Forces gather. Forces conspiring to destroy Dr. Webster. The Furies, the Fates, and their names... Dr. Jackson, Dr. Bigelow, and the man of the gratuitous turkey, Mr. Littlefield. And, as is common in classic tragedy, the pursued senses of feeling in the air. All is not right. Something is amiss. Forces are gathering. Dr. Webster felt it. He tried the air the following morning, sniffed at it, oh. sensed it immediately. Oh, my. What's wrong, dear? Uh, nothing. But you look so pale. Nothing wrong. A kiss, dear. I'm going to work. Oh, something's wrong. I'm sure of it. And having kissed his wife and sniffed the air again to make sure... Dr. Webster didn't go to work at all. Instead, he called a hansom, gave the driver an address, and was driven to a more or less fashionable part of town. Gave the driver his fare, received a wink in return, and knocked on a door. What 
Dr. Webster. Hello, my dear. I'm honored. Please come in. I really didn't mean it, you know. Mean what? About not coming to your lectures. I, I wouldn't miss them for the world. I've come to give you your tickets. Here. Thank you. They're free. <laughs> Miss Montgomery. Yes? When Dr. Parkman left my apartment the other day, Tuesday... What? Just after you came in, didn't Dr. Parkman look... Dr. Parkman? Didn't he look nice, in good health, robust, springy step? You, you recall you remarked on his springy step? I? Yes. Oh, you've done something naughty. What have you done? First tell me what happened when you came to my study at the college Tuesday to buy tickets. Well, I knocked on your door. Uh, very good. You opened it for me. Good. Bade me enter. Yes. Introduced me to Dr. Parkman, who was just leaving. Oh, excellent. We watched him go. And you said? My, what a springy step Dr. Parkman has. Bravo, bravo. Don't be troubled, Dr. dear. I'm your friend. Your very good friend. <laughs> Which was nice, because if ever a doctor needed a friend, his name was Dr. Webster. Because let's not forget the Furies, the Fates, the two physicians and the curious janitor who have gathered and discussed a certain hypothesis and came to an agreement. Let's take a walk around the building. And they did. Downstairs. Upstairs. Further upstairs, the attic. Three o'clock, gentlemen. I guess we know all we need to know. Jackson and oh, give this intrusion upon your study, Dr. Webster. We've been waiting for you. I have the keys. I let these gentlemen in. You... I didn't give you permission to do that, Mr. Littlefield. Uh, you know Dr. Bigelow, of course, Doctor. And I've heard you've met Mr. Cliver of the Boston Police. Gentlemen. Will you take over, Mr. Cliver? Thank you, Dr. Jackson. Dr. Webster. Yes, sir? We found Dr. Parkman, or rather, these gentlemen did, and they called me. They showed me where Dr. Parkman was. I see. How is he? Come now. The last time I saw Dr. Parkman, he was the picture of health. A man with a springy step. You are under arrest, Dr. Webster. And they took Dr. Webster away, and they locked him up, and held a trial for him, and in spite of his protestations, found him guilty. I must tell you, too, that Miss Montgomery, shy girl that she must have been, completely disappeared in the face of adversity. 
While waiting for final sentence to be pronounced by the governor and council, Dr. Webster maintained his usual good spirits, partook heartily of the food afforded him by his friends, and generally behaved himself. Then the sentence was handed down. He was to be hanged. Oh, no. By the neck until he was dead. I confess that I killed Dr. Parkman. There. That makes up for something, doesn't it? On August 31, 1850. Doesn't it? And that's when he was hanged. For a deed of blood, for a murder most foul. In just a moment, Thomas Highland will tell you about next week's crime classic. Dr. Webster, tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was composed and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program was produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. In tonight's story, Jay Novello is heard as Dr. Webster. Featured in the cast were Paula Winslow, Martha Wentworth, Jean Howell, Herb Butterfield, Junius Matthews, and Larry Thor. Bob Lamont speaking. And here again is Thomas Highland. Next week, St. Joseph, Missouri, on a hot April day in 1882. The time? The exact moment when Jesse James turned his back on Charlie and Bob Ford. And my report to you on the death of a picture hanger. Thank you. Good night. The profitable end of the rainbow is always in view of Bill Cullen's lively quiz show, Walk a Mile. Contestants have four opportunities, each representing a quarter of a mile, to make good on this fun-packed show. If they can walk a mile, they're in line for the jackpot. I'll tell you what, instead of us talking about it, why not listen for Walk a Mile later this evening on most of these same CBS radio stations. Stay tuned now for Gary Moore with Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, which follows immediately over most of these same stations. And remember, there's action as a policeman really finds it in 21st Precinct, Tuesdays, on the CBS Radio Network. Back with you. How are y'all doing? Um, take your shoes off and set a spell. I'm going to make up a Sunday right now, and you can pop your corn or whatever you want to do. Um, today, what I'm doing is I'm fixing me kind of like a, I guess like a, a Dairy Queen blizzard. I'm doing uh, Reese cups uh, and M&Ms inside some vanilla ice cream and uh, I'm going to put my strawberry and whipped cream on top shortly but not right now 
So yum, yum. Um, the next one that I'm going to do for you is called Crime Club, and it, it's a nice one too. It's uh, when you um, when you when you open it up, you have the man, and he's always he's looking in his library trying to find what he's gonna uh, what he's gonna show you today, and um, what he's gonna read to you, and so. Uh, he looked yesterday when I was getting things together and he found dead man control. And, um, so I really like this because it, it, uh, reminds me of back when I was in school and I used to hang out in the stacks of the library all the time just looking for books. And, um, I would find them. And I can remember when I was in the sixth grade and, uh, uh, I got a book, I got a Shakespeare book and, uh, the librarian came and snatched it out of my hand and said, you're too young to read that. You won't be able to understand it. And, uh, so she jerked it out of my hand and because she had taught us the Dewey Decimal System and everything, I went back in the library and I was able to find it again and I brought it out and uh so I read it and I went back and I told her, I said, uh, you know, there's nothing to understand about this. Uh uh I and so I told her the story. I forgot which one it was. Um I think it was Julius Caesar actually, but I but I couldn't swear to it. Uh but you know, I was able to follow it, whatever it was. And uh so I came out and told her the plot and she said, Well you did understand it, didn't you? So I mean I've always been a good reader, so but they he he always said in the um at the end of the show he would tell you where you could get crime club books. And I don't know if those books are still available now or not. They might be, but uh, they were actually books back then that you could uh, that you could buy, uh, like your comic books and stuff. But of course, these would be stories. So you guys enjoy, and I'll be back with you in just a few. Hello, I hope I haven't kept you waiting. Yes, this is the crime club. I'm the librarian. Dead man control. Yes, we have that crime club story for you. Come right over. Take the easy chair by the window. Comfortable? The book is on this shelf. Here it is. Dead Man Control by Helen Riley. The very absorbing story of a murder in which Cupid held the hand of death. Let's look at it under the reading lamp. It was late morning. 
and in the library of a mansion on East 67th Street, multi-millionaire Fenimore Kingston was standing before the wall safe he had just opened. He smiled. And then as he reached in... <laughs> two hours later, Inspector Christopher McKee was in his office at police headquarters on Center Street when the telephone rang. Inspector McKee talking. Homicide Bureau. Good morning. This is Catherine Kingston. Yes? This is Fenimore Kingston. Oh, yes? My husband's been murdered. Can you come? Where? Our home is on East 67th Street. All right, I'll be there in 20 minutes. Yes, sir. Cassidy, order my car. We're going uptown. Yes, sir. And how are you... And don't stop to ask about anybody's health. I'm in a hurry. Please go on, Mrs. Kingston. Well, Inspector, as soon as I saw that open wall safe, I thought my husband had been killed by a burglar. Mm-hmm. So while I was waiting for you, I checked the contents. The money and the bonds were still there. But... Yes? The diamond ring that Fenimore gave me after our wedding three months ago. That's gone. That wouldn't be the well-publicized Kingston diamond, would it? It would, Inspector. And it's worth a half a million dollars. Yes, but the cash on those negotiable bonds... I can't understand why they weren't taken to... Very unusual thief, to say the least. Where were you when the miracle happened? Out. I went out early this morning... I was restless. Why? I was tired of doing nothing. So I took the car and drove until I was tired of driving. Alone? Inspector McKee. Don't be a lie, Mrs. Kingston. I'm not insinuating... But your tone... Merely professional. Now, according to the medical examiner, your husband was shot in the back and death was instantaneous about two hours ago. Who was in the house with him then? I don't know. What about the servants? Did they go out driving too? We have no servants. In this big house? They quit last night. Oh? Don't let it surprise you, Inspector. Fenimore was not an easy person to get along with. Mrs. Kingston, for your special information, I don't let anything surprise me. Excuse me, sir. What is it, Cassidy? It's about the murder weapon. Did you find it? Uh, no, sir. There ain't a trace of it in the house. Uh, me and the boys have looked in every nook and... All right, Cassidy. Uh, All right. Yes, sir. Oh, my. What's the matter? Over there, Inspector. Peep it out from under that corner of the window drape. It shines like a diamond. It is a diamond. Well, if it is, then the saints preserve us. It must be as big as an eyeball. Yes. Well, Mrs. Kingston? My ring. No burglary, huh? It doesn't seem so, does it? But how did that ring get under the drape? The law of gravity. It fell when your husband fell, after he was shot. And it either rolled or bounced. You can take your pick. I'll take the ring, if you don't mind. Later. Right now, it's evidence. But it's mine. We'll take good care of it. Come on, Cassidy. I'll be finished here, sir. For the time being, goodbye, Mrs. Kingston. Goodbye, Inspector. Cassidy. Uh, Inspector McKee, if it's one question I might ask... Go ahead. Uh, What's the ring got to do with the cadaver we carried upstairs? I think it killed him. The deputy, say. Don't lead me on, Sergeant. I've no time to explain. If you say so, Inspector. Going back to my office. I want you to go to the telephone company. Get a list of every call that's been made from or to this house in the last two days. Report to me at headquarters. Yes, sir. But there's one thing that... Now what? But it's that girl in there, Mrs. Kingston. Now, I've been on the force for 32 years, and it's a fine education I've got about the good and the bad in people. Not now, Cassidy. When a girl, young and beautiful, marries a man twice her age and a millionaire... 
she didn't marry him for love. Michael Dolger's apartment? Yes. Who is this? Amy Clarberson. Why? This is Catherine Kingston. Let me talk to Michael, please. You might ask me how I'm feeling. Please, Amy. After all, you did get what I wanted. I want to speak to Michael. I'll ask him how he feels about it. Hold the wire. And don't wind it too tightly around your neck, dear. Hello, Kathy. What's she doing there? Oh, she just dropped in for a cocktail. Oh, it doesn't matter. I want you to meet me right away. Where? Central Park, inside the 72nd Street entrance. I'll pick you up in my car. All right. What's the rumpus about? Fenimore's dead. What? what did you say? He was murdered this morning. Good grief. Maybe, uh, maybe I'd better come over. No. The police are here, dozens of them, all over the place. Meet me in half an hour. And come alone. How'd you manage it? I didn't. What? I couldn't get out without being seen. Michael, I'm in trouble. But if the police followed you... Is that all you care about? Your precious hide? Well, it's the only one I've got... Well, you don't have to worry. I wasn't followed. Are you sure? Yes, look for yourself. Is there a police car behind us? No, but... Michael, really, I'm in serious trouble. How was Fenimore killed? He was shot. And the police think I did it. You? Have they said so? Well, not in words, they haven't. That Inspector McGee, he thinks he's very clever. Well, you should have left me alone, Kathy. I couldn't. I had to speak to you. Well, why didn't you do it on the phone? I didn't want to incriminate you. What? Suppose one of those policemen had been listening at the door. Well, suppose. He'd have heard me asking you about that appointment you had with Fenimore this morning. That I had? Just about the time he was killed. Now, wait a minute. I had no appointment with Fenimore. That's not the truth. He phoned you and asked you to come over. Did he tell you that? No. Then how do you know so much? I was listening in on the upstairs extension. Oh. How much did you hear? He wanted you to meet him at the house at 11 o'clock. It was very important. Anything else? No, I put the receiver down. It was half past ten, and I wanted to be out of the house before you arrived. Really? I didn't know what he was going to talk to you about. I was afraid it might be us. So you ran away. That's too bad. Why? Because if you'd stayed, you'd have learned something. Didn't he talk to you about us? No, dear. Well, then what did he? I don't know. I wasn't there. What? That's right. Fenimore wanted to see me, but I didn't want to see him, and I told him so. You told Fenimore? Yes, I did. <laughs> the great mammoth. Well, was it about time? I'd like to believe that, Mike. Then do. I got tired of being my cousin's errand boy and of running to him every time he beckoned. But you're allowing I told him what to do with that, too. But it doesn't make any difference now, does it? No. You're free. And we'll have all the money we both need. That's putting it very bluntly. Why not? 
He never cared for anyone, including you. You were the most beautiful thing he ever saw, and he wanted you. It's just as simple as that. I know all about it. All right. All right. I'll shut up. Kathy. Yes? Did you really go out this morning? I said I did. Of course. But I was just thinking, what a wonderful opportunity you had alone in that house with him. Yeah? Uh-huh. Good work, Gordon. Let me know when she gets back. Can I come in, Inspector? Help yourself, Cassidy. Well, I checked with the telephone company, sir, and it's big news if I don't mind saying it myself. Yes? Anything like Catherine Kingston going out to meet a man? A uh, uh, what? You've heard of the species, Cassidy. And I'm sure you've heard of Central Park. Is that where she went with him? Mm-hmm. In broad daylight? <laughs> There's no topping an Irishman, is there? <laughs> <laughs> well, not if he comes from the county cock, sir. <laughs> it, well, who's the man? We don't know yet, but he's being tailed. Now, what did you find out at the telephone company? Oh, wait, wait, here's a list of all the cars that came and went from the Kingston house in the last couple of days. Right. Uh, but but uh, it's them last three that was made this morning. Yes, all outgoing. One at 10.30, one at... 10.35. And Kingston was killed at about 11. And this one at 1.45. Oh, a few minutes after we left Mrs. Kingston. That's right. Who were these calls made to? Uh, oh, yeah, but I, I got another slip of paper. Now, where did... Oh, yeah, here it is. Now, 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 the first one and the last one to Michael Dolge. So that's the man. Mm-hmm. Now, go ahead, Cassidy. I'm just checking. Uh, he was the dead man's cousin. How do you know? Well, I remember seeing his name in the papers after the Kingston wedding. Seems to me he was either the best man or one of the ushers. But it's not him I'd be worrying about, sir. No? Why not? It's that woman. The one who got the call at 10.35. What woman? Amy Clowbertson. Ah, no answer. Michael Doe's most likely out with Catherine Kingston. Yeah. Uh, what did you say about a woman? Look, uh, Amy Clowbertson. Well, what about her? Well, see, you know how I read the newspapers every day. I know. Well, after I get through with the spotting pages, I always turn to the society page. Mm. It's an old habit of mine. I acquired it 32 years ago when I was a rookie on that Fifth Avenue beat. <laughs> you know Fifth Avenue uptown where Central Park lies opposite them glorious mansions with the beautiful... Sit down, Cassidy. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. <laughs> oh, me, them were fine old days. Yep, people used to come from all over just to look at the Woolworth building. Don't let me interrupt you, but you were telling me about a woman. Uh, a woman? Yes, in connection with a murder. Oh, yes, yeah. Amy Clarbertson. Well, sir, seeing her name again brought to mind a society page item of about five months ago. To the effect that Amy Clarbertson and Fennimore Kingston were engaged to be married. Cassidy, are you sure? Yes, I am, sir, because the diamond ring was mentioned in the same article. How? Where did she wore it at the formal reception? I see. And not two months later, Fennimore Kingston married Catherine. It's the old story, Inspector. Not another one, please. The woman scorns. There's no fury like a woman who expects to marry a millionaire and gets jilted. Yes. Yes. There's no doubt about it. All right, I'll pick it up on the way out. Well. Oh, bad news, Inspector. For someone. That was a lab just phoned. The ring we found is a phony. A perfect imitation. You mean it's made of glass? Not quite. 
Somebody had a good job done for a few hundred dollars, and the original valued at half a million... Well, it might be somewhere in a vault, maybe. Uh, lots of people wear paste and keep their valuables yes, locked yes, up. Uh, oh, Cassidy. No, yes, sir. Phone the Kingston house. Tell the men to turn that place inside out. Yes, sir. And when you get through, take as many men as you need and contact every diamond cutter in town, especially the ones around Maiden Lane. Yes, sir. Now, where's that slip of paper with the names on it? It's right here, sir. The address is too. Give it to me. I'm going out to pay Amy Culbertson a visit. Excuse me. I don't want any. Inspector McKee, police. I still don't want any, but you can come in. I have scotch on the table. Cigarettes, if you didn't bring your own. No, thanks. Sit yourself. What do you want? Sit down, please. You're here to ask a lot of questions about Fenimore Kingston's murder. Don't waste your breath because I don't know any of the answers. How do you know about his murder? Radio told me. Not today. Not today, Miss Lawerson. Why don't you sit down? Maybe I don't want to. Would you have any reason to protect Catherine Kingston? Not one. Well, here's to you. Michael Dole? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to catch you off guard. Why'd you mention his name to me? This pack of matches with his name on the cover. You're pretty smart, aren't you? I have a weakness for matches that are left on tables. All right, so he told me about Fenimore's death. I was at his apartment when Catherine phoned. She told him. Anything else you'd like to know? What time did you meet Fenimore Kingston this morning? I did what? He phoned you at 10.35. How'd you find out about that? You just told me. What? Why, you wheedling wheedling. Shall we talk now? Pitch curves and have me swing at him. I'd like to know about you and Fenimore Kingston. I'm through talking to you. Are you? Then suppose we go down to headquarters. What for? We're very lonesome. Now, wait a minute. Let me go. I haven't done anything. What about you and Kingston? We were engaged. And then he jilted me and married that... Yes? Catherine and I were in the same show. I met Fenimore at a party, and he fell for me like a ton of diamonds. And then, like a fool, I introduced him to Catherine. Why did he phone you this morning? One today. Now, look, Miss Blanton. That's the truth. Told me he was going to divorce Catherine. He found out about her and Michael. He thought I knew something, too. And, of course, you rushed over to Michael's apartment and told him. Oh, not exactly. I tried to make it casual. Three hours later? Mike and I were in the same boat. Both of us had been kicked around by Fenimore. That was a common bond. So you waited from 10.35 until almost 2. Oh, still pitching curves, aren't you? Was it because you tried to get his apartment in the morning and couldn't? No. Or didn't you even try? What do you want from me? I didn't kill anybody. Fenimore didn't call you to talk about his wife. Then I don't know what he did call me he for. He asked you about this ring. What? What you... You wore it for a while, didn't you? Yeah, but I gave it back. This one? Look, mister, there's only one of its kind in the world. Why did he call you about it? Because he thought... Yes? Nothing. He thought you'd know a good imitation from the real thing. You mean that diamond's a fake? We'll find out soon enough, if you're really surprised. Goodbye, for now. Oh, you going? Sorry? Oh, I'm collapsing. Drop in again sometime. Anytime. Thanks. And let's hope I don't have to return that invitation. Hmm? <laughs>
Hello, Michael. Amy, what are you doing here? I figured she'd drive you home. She was always the lady. Get back in the car. Now see here, Get Amy. back or I'll make a scene that'll turn you both into mummies. Better do as she says, Michael. All right, Cassie. I'll be right behind you, kiddies, in the back seat. Now, Catherine, who told Inspector McKee about me? What? About Fenimore having phoned me this morning. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, you know he phoned me, don't you? No. Oh, you couldn't tell the truth if you had a mouthful of it and it was choking. Wait a minute, Amy. She's trying to frame me. And she'll frame you, too. What was Fenimore talking to you about? Ask her. She was tuned into the extension. Were you, Kathy? No. She had to be. How else? She said no, Amy. All right, so she said no. How did Inspector McKee know that I talked to Fenimore and about the diamond, too? The diamond? Yes. Maybe you didn't know that beautiful thing was just a hunk of glass. What? That's a lie. Well, it wasn't when Fenimore asked me about it this morning. He wanted me to return the original. Oh, is that why you killed him? Oh, I knew that was coming out of you. You'd like the police to think that, wouldn't you? Maybe they already do. Well, that wouldn't put you in the clear, Kathy, darling. I returned the original to Fenimore. Can you prove it? Can you prove that I didn't? Wind her up, Michael. She seems to have run down. I think you've said enough, Amy. I'm through. And so is she. For good, I hope. Inspector McKee, homicide. Cassidy talking, sir. Go ahead. I think I found him, Inspector. Who? The diamond cutting fella. Good. What does he say about the Kingston Diamond? Well, sir, it might be the man and it might not. What? Well, I found him in a small room on the top floor of a small building just around the corner off Main and Lane. There was no name on the door, just the words Diamond Cutting. But I took a chance That's anyway. It's a good thing I did, Inspector. No. For there was that poor old fellow stretched out on the floor, dead. Oh, no. A little fellow he was, too. And beaten around the head unmercifully. What's the address? Oh, I, I, I got it written down on a piece of paper. Now, with it, oh, yes, here it is. It's up here, Inspector. All right, Cassidy, I'm doing the best I can. But I, I, I got some information, sir. I checked with some of the neighbors on this Where's floor. Where's the body? Uh, well, I'll take you to it, sir. Well, as I was saying, I checked. And the fellow's name was Rudolph Liebnitz. What else? Well, that's all, sir. He came over from the other side a few years ago. A victim of war and oppression. And to think that his only reward for minding his own business... How do you know he was minding his own business? His reputation in the trade, Inspector, was good. He was known to all his neighbors as an honest man, a good worker, and a fine, upstanding character. And and, and when your competitors have only praise... Is this the room, Cassidy? Uh, Yes, sir. There he is. Yeah. A little old fella. Why didn't you tell me his files had been opened and dumped? Well, I was going to. Well, it doesn't matter. Somebody wanted a record and they took it. Uh, You uh, think this can be an outcome of the Kingston murder? Maybe, 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 maybe. Let's have a look at the body. Uh, He didn't have a chance. Struck on the back of the head and then beaten until he was... uh, Yes? This man's been dead since this morning. Late this morning. Would you be sure about that? Rigor mortis takes at least six hours to set in. It's just beginning. Ah, then it'd be about the time Fenimore Kingston was murdered. A little later, but not much. The killer came right from the Kingston house to this place and... All right, Cassidy, there's no point in searching the room. No, sir? We won't find anything. Oh. Hello. Hello, operator. 
Uh, give me police headquarters. Have you got a plan, sir? I hope so, Cassidy. I... Hello. Uh, give me Murphy and Homicide. Inspector McKee. I hope so, Cassidy. If it works, it'll be a miracle. Uh, well, talk of the Hello, miracles. There was a... I want you to have the following three parties picked up. All right? Catherine Kingston, Michael Dolge, and Abby Clauberson. You'll find the addresses on my desk. And keep them in my office until I get there. Now, as for you, Cassidy. Yes, sir. You stay here. Phone the medical examiner's office and look after the usual details. I'm going out for a long walk. Yes, sir. Those people will wait, even if they don't like it. And let's hope they don't like it enough to burn. Inspector McKee. Well, company. How are you, Mrs. Kingston? Why did you have me brought here? And Miss Robertson? I'm cheerful enough to break your neck. And taking two from three, you must be Michael Doe. We've been waiting for two hours, Inspector. Yes. Why have you had me arrested? It's a habit of mine, Mrs. Kingston, when a murder's been committed. Well, then we are under arrest. For the time being, Miss Robertson. Now, if you'll excuse me for a moment, uh, I've been working on another case, and there's some papers on my desk that I... You've no right to keep us here. Please, Kathy. Well, he hasn't, Michael. Not without charges. Then wait and try to be calm. Hmm, very interesting. There's nothing incriminating in what I said, Inspector. Oh, no. I, I wasn't referring to that. It's this memo. Good news. Well, I'm not going to wait here and let you waste my time. Mrs. Gangston, this building is full of policemen. Pity sake, Kathy. Stop being so nervous. If he has anything to say to us, he... I must... have. One of you killed Fenimore Kingston this morning. I wasn't home. You were out driving. But who saw you, Mrs. Kingston? What? It takes at least two to make an alibi. But surely you don't think that I... Well, you're out of your mind, Inspector. She married him only three months ago. And then she changed her mind. She thought how nice it would be to marry you. Inspector... It's all right, Kathy. He's just fishing. But that wasn't the reason Kingston was killed. What? Look out for him when he pitches curves. You know the reason, Miss Clubberson. Oh, now I'm it, huh? Kingston found out that his famous diamond had become an invitation. My ring? This morning, he took it out of the wall safe. The thief, the person who had made the substitution, was in the room with him. And Kingston was shot in the back and killed. Don't look at me, Inspector. I wasn't there. How about you, Mrs. Kingston? I told you. Yes, yes. And you, Mr. Dolge? I didn't know anything about Fenimore's death until Catherine phoned me. Then you admit that she phoned me. Of course, it's no secret. I was Fenimore's cousin. And you were making sure that Catherine stayed in the family. Now, look here, Inspector. Excuse me, please. Yes? All right. In a few minutes. I'll call you. Now, this memo becomes very important. May we go now? Don't rush me, Mrs. Kingston. But if you're going to work on another case... I'm not. An imitation of the Kingston diamond was made. And by a strange coincidence, shortly after Fenimore Kingston was murdered, the workroom of a diamond cutter was robbed. What's that got to do with us? Miss Clarbertson, tell me what you know about Rudolf Leibniz. What I know? Look, I may get around, Would but Would you that... like to see him? All right, if it'll make you happy. I'll ask him to come in. What? He's in a room down the hall, Mr. Doze. I had him brought here from the hospital. Come the hospital. He wasn't dead. You're lying. Murphy, bring Leibniz in. No. Here. No. No. Never mind. Send in a stenographer. We're going to take a confession. 
Hello. Inspector McKee, I'm sorry to be bothering you at your home, but when I return to headquarters this evening... What is it, Cassidy? Well, it's about that fellow Michael Dole. He killed his cousin, Fenimore Kingston. Well, that's what the boys told me, but I... He took the diamond and had the imitation put in. You don't say. Mm-hmm, about three weeks ago. How did he get hold of it? That was very simple. Catherine wore the ring at a house party. Dole's mentioned to Fenimore that the diamond needed cleaning and that he could take care of it for him. Oh, so, so he took the stone down to Leibniz and had an imitation made. That's right. It was so good that Fenimore didn't notice it right away. But this morning... Ah, yes, this morning. It's all in the confession, Cassidy. Ah. Oh, then Kingston knew right away who had stolen the real diamond, didn't he now? Yes, he did now. Oh, Inspector, get along with you. <laughs> Why did he bother to phone that Amy Clarkson girl? We'll never know, Cassidy. Maybe he was anxious to turn the clock back uh, to better times. And so closes tonight's Crime Club book, Dead Man Control, based on a story by Helen Riley. Stedman Coles did the radio adaptation. Roger Bauer produced and directed. Ted Osborne played Inspector McKee. Alice Frost was Catherine Kingston. Elspeth Eric was Amy. Sherling Oliver was Michael Dolge. And Barry Thompson played Cassidy. Oh, I beg your pardon. Hello, I hope I haven't kept you waiting. Yes, this is the crime club. I'm the librarian. Yes, come over a week from tonight. We have a very unusual story of a will that had the power to kill. It's called Silent Witnesses by John Stephen Strange. In the meantime... Well, in the meantime, there is a new crime club book available this week and every week at bookstores everywhere. Yes, it's available now. Fine. And we'll look for you next week. <laughs> oh, yes. The United States Merchant Marine is offering this opportunity to young men between the ages of 16 and a half and 21. If you are an American citizen and a high school graduate, you are qualified to take the test for enrollment in the Merchant Marine Cadet Corps. Graduates of the Corps are qualified for a license as deck or engineer officer in the Merchant Marine or to a commission as ensign in the Naval Reserve or in the Maritime Service. Discharged veterans of the armed services and the Merchant Marine are eligible for the test up to their 24th birthday. They are also allowed five additional points on the test. The test is competitive and will next be held on April 4th. This program came from New York. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. This next one is also a favorite. <laughs> uh, it's called Crime Does Not Pay. And, and of course, here in this episode, Clothes Make the Woman, it did not pay. Because she got caught and she got tossed in jail. It's about furriers and a woman who uh, steals them and 
sells them and all that stuff, so I don't want to give too much away. But it was a pretty good one. So, um, I'm sitting here now. I'm, I've got my vanilla ice cream. And I've got my Reese cups chopped up. I'm pouring them in. I'm pouring in the M&M's. And I'm going to stir it. And so then I'm going to put some Hershey's chocolate syrup on top of that like I need it. Boing, there it goes. And in a little bit, we'll top it off with the strawberry and whipped cream. Crime does not pay. How much you get for the coat, kids? Half a C. Not bad, not bad at all. Not so bad it stinks. Betty. Save it, Jackie. You know it as well as I do. We take a chance on jail, snatch the coat. The price tag says 250 so the Fagin gives us half a C. Fifty lousy bucks. That's a sucker's racket. It's beer and pretzels, ain't it? I hate beer. And pretzels only make me thirsty. So beautiful. Maybe you got an idea? <laughs> Have I got an idea? Gather round, boys. Have I got an idea? In the interest of good citizenship and law enforcement, we present Crime Does Not Pay, based on the famous Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer series of short subjects. In just a moment, you will hear... Clothes Make the Woman, starring Jean Muir. Now... Crime Does Not Pay, starring Jean Muir as Betty Page in Clothes Make the Woman. Every year, hundreds of thousands of dollars are lost by department stores, large and small. Lost with the activities of shoplifters. Every store maintains its protective force, its detectives, but still the losses mount. In the end, the thieves are caught. But the stolen goods have passed through the hands of the fences into the possession of perfectly decent citizens who are susceptible to bargains. Betty Page and her boyfriend Jackie Benson worked in this racket. One of their operations was like this. I'd like to see something a little more expensive, miss. Yes, miss. My wife and I don't buy a new winter coat every year, and when we do, um, maybe you've got something with fur on it. If you'll step this way, please. Thank you. Now, this is our most expensive line of fur trim cloth coats. Oh, they're lovely. Uh, which one should I try on, Jack, dear? Well, I like that blue one with the big fluffy collar. That's a fox collar. Oh, may I put it on, miss? Oh, certainly, madam. Uh, do you, uh... 
Do you like the color, Jack, dear? Looks a little dull. So blue, it's almost black. Well, it won't look like this in daylight, will it, miss? No, it'll be a little lighter. Well, uh, could we see it in daylight, miss? I noticed some windows out near the elevator. I'm afraid I couldn't leave this part of the floor that long. Oh, you wouldn't have to come along. My wife and I will be right back. Come along, dear. They all seem like nice people, Carter. They fool even me. Sometimes. Really, Mary, how could you have let it go so long before you called me? But, but it is a long walk to the windows for the elevator. We were so busy I didn't dare leave the floor, Mr. Martin. Oh, no. $250. I don't know how I'll ever pay it back. Now, easy, easy, young lady. The store is insured, you know. Now, tell me once more exactly what happened. Like I said, Mr. Sack, they seemed like such a nice couple. You hear the names? Just, just Betty and Jack. Go on. Well, she liked the coat. He wanted to see it in daylight. I, I let them go to the elevators with it. Their windows there. Oh, I, I'm so sorry, Mr. Martin. She left her own coat on the chair. A coat worth twelve fifty at the most. After they asked to see the more expensive models. You're altogether too trusting, Mary. Not anymore, I'm not. Give you 50. What, on a $250 coat? After we risked our necks to get it? And left my own coat there. My coat cost me 100 You get 50 Oh, now look here, Louis. Now I know why they call you Fagin. Some fence you are. Save it. I gotta get some profit. You didn't do any work. I'm taking risks, ain't I? For risk, a businessman is entitled to a profit. <laughs> what risk do you take? What will I get out of it? A cloth coat with a piece of fox. A hundred bucks. So I give you fifty so we come out even. Yeah, and we do the work. Enough talk. Fifty. Take it or leave it. Jack? Ah, what's the use? Take it, Betty. It's better than nothing. <laughs> Joey, hiya, fella. Cold, cold. I could use a drink. Hey, Betty, it's a dip. Hi, Joey. Beautiful, a man wants a drink. I heard him. I'm reading the paper. Okay, honey. Betty's sore, Joey. Fagin chiseled us as usual. Louie? That thief? Yeah. Well, he pays as much as anybody. I suppose. This stuff ain't as good as it would have been if we'd have got more for the coat. <sighs> Not too bad. How much you get for the coat, kids? Half a C. It's not bad, not bad at all. Oh, it's so bad it stinks. So beautiful. Maybe you got an idea? <laughs> have I got an idea? Gather round, boys. Have I got an idea? Right here in the paper. The newspaper? Uh-huh. You're in on this, too. We'll need an extra hand. What's my cut? Three ways equal. Out of what we get from Louie? This ideal works so slick, there'll be plenty for everybody, even at Louie's rate of pay. That sounds interesting. Go ahead, kid. Just let me read you this. See the picture? Mart, that society dame, what's she got that you ain't, baby? That's Sable Coat. Ten grand if it's a dollar. So, kid, so? Listen. Mrs. Louise Williams, shown above at a recent charity function in smart Rosedale Manor, is one of the sponsors of the Milk Fund Luncheon to be given at the home of Mrs. Joseph Barton two weeks from today. Also present at the forthcoming benefit affair will be Mrs. Barlow Sampson, Miss Josephine Cowell, Mrs. Barton. 
Good afternoon. Oh, the service entrance is around at the back. Sorry, there's no time for that. Mrs. Barton called us at the last minute and told us the luncheon guests will be arriving in um, just about 45 minutes. Very well, come in. Uh, where do you wish to set up? Anywhere convenient off this foyer. Joe, give me a hand with the coat racks and... Uh... I'm Jameson. Yes, well, Jameson, where can the lady go to freshen up? There's a lavatory down the hall, third door on the right. To the base for the code rack, Jack. Back to the load. Okay. Pull around the back and get comfortable in the car till later. Right, till later. Shall I send someone to lend a hand with the racks? Well, you could hold this hand. Well... <laughs> no, I guess you couldn't. Hmm. Is there anything you will need before the guests arrive? No, there's nothing I'll need. Except for you to go ahead and tend to your uh, buttling, if that's the word. Hmm. How do I look down? You in black satin. Yeah, it's neat. How'd you pour yourself into that? And why? There's no men around this operation except me, Joey, and that Jameson. Well, that's why, dear. Some of these society ladies show everything they've got, and I intend to keep your mind on me and the job. Are the racks ready? All in place. Hey, look at the frail coming down the stairs. That's Mrs. Barton, you dope. Now you know why I'm wearing what I'm wearing. May I ask, please, what you're doing here? Oh, oh, I'm terribly sorry, Mrs. Barton. You are Mrs. Barton, aren't you? Yes, I am. Explain yourself, please, young lady. Well, your butler, Jameson, called us. The Acme Portable Hat and Coat Checking Service. This is our specialty service in private homes. And half of our tips go to the fund which the functions we service are given for. Hmm, that's a nice idea. Strange Jameson didn't tell me he'd called you. Well, he called just half an hour ago in the rush of preparation. He must have forgotten. Perhaps. I've been dressing during the last half hour. Oh, excuse me, the door. I'll answer it, madam. Never mind, Jameson. I want you to check the service pantry. Thank you, madam. Oh, what a life he leads. Yes, madam. No, madam. I'll do it, madam. Shh, quiet, you fool. Sweet darling. Marty, dear. I'm so glad you came early. But I thought I might have something to do. Not a thing, darling, not a thing. Except have a cocktail and keep me company. Well, that would be a pleasure. Check your coat, dear. Tips go to the milk fund. Of course. It's a wonderful idea. I do so hate to have all the bedrooms mussed with coats and things. It was Jameson's idea. One of these days, I'm going to steal that man right from under your roof. <laughs> <laughs> you try, darling. Just you try. Oh, no, wait. Just a moment. Let me see that coat on you. Oh, haven't you seen it before? Only in that picture in the Tribune. Oh, it's luscious. Leopold, of course. Oh, thank you, dear. Yes, of course it's Leopold. Could anyone else match skins like these? Uh, here's my coat, young lady. Thank you, ma'am. We'll take care of it for you. <laughs> May I compliment you, young lady, on the way you've pleased Mrs. Barton's guest? Thanks, Jameson. Now you've said your piece, run along. Well, really. After all, one could be polite. What's with him? Is he on the make or something? <laughs> could be. I understand black satin has an effect on some men. <laughs> oh, it has on me, baby. Nothing any of the dames in there was wearing can make him look like you. Save it, darling. We got work to do. Did you hear you? Sure. Joey heard me. He's coming. Okay, kids. 
I'm out here waiting all set. Here they come, Joey. Wait till Louie sees this hall. Mink, Persian lamb, broadtail, sable, and all real. Hey, Joey, his course load is about 30 coaches. No, no, Jackie, not all of them. You want to leave some? Got him. Next pile. Hold it, Joey. Bet he's going nuts. Not me, I'm smart. The three coats you just put through that window are worth about 15 grand. Okay, we take six more, including Louise Williams. We'll have over 50 grand in the hall, but we leave the rest. So nobody will suspect anything until the women whose coats we took come looking for them. By that time, we'll be miles away. Get it, Jackie? <laughs> Got it, beautiful. <laughs> In just a moment, Crime Does Not Pay will continue with Clothes Make the Woman. Now we continue with Crime Does Not Pay, starring Gene Muir as Betty Page in Clothes Make the Woman. Stolen goods have little value unless there is a market for them. It's up to the fence, the receiver of the goods, to find that market. In the case of Betty Page and her friends, Louis Fagan Keller had to find the market. He waited a sufficient length of time and then approached his first possible customer. Who is it? You're decent, Patty. Who is it? Louis Keller, remember? Not my favorite bargain hunter. And finder. <laughs> Do I get into the dressing room with the best torch singer in town? <laughs> At least in your opinion. Come on in, Louis. Get yourself comfortable. I gotta make a change. Yeah. Hey, you're looking wonderful, Patty. Louie, when I come out from behind the screen, you're going to need another word. That's all. Go where me, Louie. No top, no back, practically no front. And cost an arm and a leg. <laughs> but not mine. <laughs> <laughs> I bet on that. Uh, Patty, uh, in a market for real bargain? But what is it this time, Louie? Hey? No. Sables. Yikes. You got it on you? I'm not crazy yet. You don't carry 10 G's worth of sables around like they were silver foxes. Are they hot? You know me better than that, Patty. Do I? Say, how a look. <laughs> good enough to eat and then some. Um, sables go good with gold lamé. Not hot sables. I don't peddle hot stuff, Patty. You know that. Well, how then? Well, some people went broke. I bailed them out of hot. Wife gave me the coat for cash. Oh, I believe you. How much? Five G's. Too much. What's your offer? Uh, two five. Not a nickel less than three five. I gave two for it myself. Three five, it's a deal. When? Tonight, when you finish your last number. That, Patty, <laughs> is Keller's service. Lieutenant, we've waited so long. You don't seem to understand. We understand, Mrs. Barton. You called us here when the theft was discovered. We questioned your butler and the other servants. Your butler says the coat check people told him you called them. You say they told you he called them. Total zero. When we have nothing to work with, Mrs. Barton, there's practically nothing we can do. Except wait. Wait, Lieutenant. How long? For what? 
No one knows how long. For a break. A break? But surely the insurance company... They have their own people. They've seen us. They think it's your butler. Jameson? Impossible. He worked for my father, now for me. He's known me since I was born. People get funny ideas sometimes when they need money. Jameson wants for nothing. He never will. Nothing you know of, Mrs. Barton. Now, let it be, Stone. The butler's all right. So are the other servants. In fact, they're so all right and so used to everything being normal, they were perfect setups for the crowd that pulled this job. Surely, Lieutenant, there must be something you can do. I won't be able to hold up my head. In my house, to have such a thing happen. When the break comes, Mrs. Barton, we'll be ready. But what kind of a break, Lieutenant? Mrs. Barton, 85% of the population of our prisons talk themselves in. We'll get our break with patience. <laughs> you should have seen her drool when she saw that coat, Betty. Oh, I drooled myself. I wish I could have kept it. Patty Laurel, without a brain in her head, gets to wear that coat. What do we care? She's got the coat, we got the dough. Yeah, I knew you kids had come through with a big idea. Once, anyway. Once? What do you mean by that? Well, you can't pull a stunt like that again. Oh, can't we? Now, look, Betty, let's not take chances. We pulled down 15 grand on that deal and no income taxes. Shut up and listen. Okay, okay. Aren't you riding high, kid? Never mind that, Fagin. Get this. There hasn't been a word in the papers about the Barton job. Not one word. <laughs> How they hate to be taken, that kind of people. But okay, that means nobody's talking. So for the next job, we pick a spot a few miles from Rosedale, and nobody will be wise. Smart. Smart as a whip, but not too soon. There's no sense taking chances, and we don't have to. What scared you, darling? Dick Davis. Who's he? You remember, don't you? The party Joey threw to celebrate our hall. What, that, that little one with a squint? That's him. Best second story man I ever did business with. Yeah, well, he's in a tank. What? Yesterday. Went back to a neighborhood too soon. Picked him up, caught him on a job. Oh, so he pulled a boner. And he had a piece on him. Armed robbery. Twenty years. Poor Jake. His own fault for getting caught. They won't take me that way. See what I've got, boys. Eddie, where'd you get that piece? It's a souvenir, a war souvenir, 25 caliber, a lady's gun. Fellow I bought it from says it packs a terrific punch. Now, that's no good, kid. Lose it someplace. If we do another job, don't carry it. Not carry it? Now, boys, you know everything's going on these days. A girl wouldn't think of wearing her minks unless she had some protection. <laughs> Look, Davis, we're not playing dominoes. You got a choice. 20 years to life for armed robbery, or we'll pin the 4th Street killing on you. You can't do that. You can't, Lieutenant. You wouldn't find an innocent man. Oh, wouldn't I? But I don't know nothing. I always worked alone. You know that. Please, Lieutenant, give me a break, will you? You had to have someone sell your halls for you. Who was it? I sold it myself. Peddler. Honest. Stone, uh, yeah. is the conference room free? The one downstairs. If it isn't, it will be. Say, did you know, Lieutenant, they just did a new soundproofing job down there. Yeah, a man could yell his lungs out and nobody'd ever hey, hear wait him. Wait a minute, wait oh, a minute. That's so. How nice. Uh, what do you say we test the soundproofing with little Richard here? No, 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 you can't. It's against the law. <laughs> Listen to who's talking now, Stone. <laughs> against the law, huh? Well, well, well. Can, uh, can, uh, could I make a deal? What kind? Well, maybe, uh, maybe you drop the arm part of the charge. What for? Will you? Will you? 
Let's see the size of your merchandise. It's, uh, it's the gang that pulled the Rosedale man a job. The Rosedale job? You in on that? No, 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 not me. But I went to a party. They were celebrating, see? Jackie Benson, Betty Page, Joey the Dipwaters, even Louis Fagan Keller, the fence. You see, they, uh, that is Joey, he had a few too many, see? I got the whole layout. Is it a deal, Lieutenant? Is it? <laughs> Patty, I want to see your new coat. On or off, Lieutenant? Uh, save it for the suckers out front, Patty. Where's the coat? In the closet. And I paid good, honest money for that coat. Yeah, sure, sure. The money was honest, but how about the man who sold it to you? How about Louis Keller? Uh, is this it? Yeah, that's it. What are you doing? Stop it! You're ruining the coat! You got no Shut right up, to Patty! This is stolen goods, and you know it. See? Yeah. Here's the furrier's code mark. Is it the what? Furrier's code on the skins under the lining. Good as fingerprints. You don't mind if I borrow your sables for a few days, do you, Patty? I'll give you a receipt. Well, Mr. Leopold? But of course, of course it is my coat. I know it even without the markings. Whose is it? Mrs. Williams. Louise Williams. For her, I made it. Special. I matched the skins like no other coat in the world. You keep a record that'll stand up in court. But of course, always. You know that, Lieutenant. Yes, Mrs. Barton, we got our break. We found Mrs. Williams' coat. Oh, Louise will be delighted. No more than I am, Lieutenant. I'm sure you are. Now then, Mrs. Barton, we'll get all the coats back if you'll cooperate with but, us. But what can I do? You have a lot of friends, Mrs. Barton. Do you think one of them would go so far as to arrange a benefit affair like yours? Say, uh, someone who lives about ten miles away from you, Mrs. Barton? you suppose this one's worth, Betty? Not much about free cheese. They're better ones. Where's Joey? You whistled for him five minutes ago. It's a different layout here. What's eating you? I don't know. I just don't like the feeling around here. For the love of Mike, the girl's getting sensitive. Sensitive? Didn't you notice who's here? Where's Joey? I'll be along in a minute. Who's here? Mrs. Barton and the Williams dame. Oh, so that's why you ducked behind the racks and let me check them. They'd remember a woman. All right, it's all right. They didn't see you. There's Joey. It's not picking kid. Here they come. Okay, Betty. Here's, here's three for a while. I'll get some more. Right. Now watch it, Joe. Hey, Betty, that's not Joe at the car. No, it's not, Benson. Cop! None of that. There's no exit for you, Benson. I told her we couldn't pull the same stunt twice. Where's the dame? Betty! The dame's crammed, Lieutenant. What? She came out from behind the coat racks with a gun. Got out the door before we could grab her. I will get her. You take care of this monkey while I get out the alarm. <laughs> Hey, you had a good hunch, Stone. Restroom covered? Inside and out, Lieutenant. Check. Let's go. Pardon me, miss. Uh, you're Betty Page, aren't you? Sorry. I'm afraid you've made a mistake. I'm not... Yes, much... you are. The young man over there says so. His name is Jack Benson. Jack Benson? A full of filthy rotten. Oh, no. You can't blame a man for finding his way out of a long-term rap. I can okay. blame a man for anything. Got a gun, Lieutenant. Stop it. Dirty rotten. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Ladies, 
play with guns. Not around me, anyway. You didn't have to break my wrist. You didn't have to. Yeah, I wouldn't worry about that. It'll have plenty of time to heal where you're going. Crime does not pay. Gene Muir, who has starred as Betty Page in Clothes Make the Woman, will be back with you in just a moment. Now, here in person is Jean Muir. To me, the most interesting side of the character of Betty Page is her background, a part of her which, unfortunately, there's no time to dwell on at length. Invariably, though, girls like Betty Page reached and passed a point in their lives where they were denied the nice things they saw other girls have, through no fault of their own, and denied, too, the means to get those things honestly. With a good education, a job of the future, Betty would have become a useful citizen. Her mind, and she had a good one, would then have worked for, not against, society. It follows, then, that the fundamental causes of Betty's career in crime lie at the door of society as a whole. It is up to us, the everyday citizens, to understand those causes and to destroy them, because for us, as well as for the Betty Pages of this world, crime does not pay. Thank you, Jean Muir. Crime Does Not Pay is written by Ira Marion and directed by Mark D. Lowe, with music composed and conducted by John Gart. Technical advisor is Burton B. Turkus. The events, characters, and names used in the story you've just heard are fictitious. Any similarity is purely coincidental. y'all last but not least um i've got my strawberry and whipped cream show a lot of times it's different but today i stuck with the crime uh the 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 crime scene and made it part of the theme and it's called stand by for crime and the episodes i'm i'm sorry to say are only a lot are only labeled like episode one, episode two, and such. So I uh, can't really tell you what the name of it is, but it was a good one. And um, so maybe you guys will enjoy it. I hope you do, because I had fun picking them out. And we you know, we might do uh, another crime theme another day and uh, pick out some more things. But the thing is, you know, I, I try to keep my show cut, you know, kind of short because I don't want to uh, wear Victor out because he has to sit there and do all the hard work. Because if it wasn't for Victor, I wouldn't have a show. And, of course, many of us wouldn't, I guess. But um, when I get my new computer, I will be able to take some of that uh, stress off him because I'll be learning 
to do uh, some of the things that need to be done on the website. And uh, the thing is, my computer is so old and slow now. If I get it to doing too much at one time, uh, it wants to lock up, freeze up, stop talking, stop moving, stop doing anything. So, uh, anyway... Enjoy this one. Hope you're eating a snack. And I'll be back to close out in just a minute. Stand by for crime. Hi, Chuck Morgan. You know, right now, just about every large American city has a threat of communism. It's an insidious thing, dangerous, and a little bit frightening. In some cities, it's worse than others. Here in Los Angeles, where I work as a newscaster on radio station KOP, we feel that the threat is more than frightening. It's a menace that must be stamped out if our way of life is to survive. Most any day, you can turn the dial of your radio or pick up a newspaper and read where the Committee on Un-American Activities is investigating some well-known Hollywood celebrity. It gives you a queer feeling when you see those familiar names. You wonder who's going to be next and why. And you find yourself groping for an answer to this disease that is doing its best to undermine Americanism. Those were the thoughts that were running through my mind when I came into my office a few weeks ago and found the script for my 7 o'clock broadcast lying on my desk. I read it through and got a jolt that set me back on my heels. Just as I finished, my blonde secretary, Carol Curtis, came in. Hi, Chucky boy. Hi. Who wrote this? Who wrote what? This script, my 7 o'clock broadcast. Oh. Oh, I forgot to tell you. Uh, Pappy wrote it. He asked me to leave it on your desk. Pappy? Well, sure. What's wrong with that? After all, Chuck, Pappy owns KOP, and if he wants... Where are you going? Never mind. Now, you get at that typewriter and knock out another script. This one's out. See you later. Okay, Mayor. It'll be on the air tonight. Goodbye. Oh, hello, Chuck. What's on your mind? You know what's on my mind, Pappy. What kind of tripe is this you want me to broadcast tonight? Tripe? Hey, wait a minute. I wrote that script. So Carol said. Are you out of your mind, Pappy? It's loaded with red propaganda. I know it is. You know... Now, hold it, Pappy. This I don't believe. Sit down, Chuck, and I'll tell you about it. You better make it good. Chuck, if you use this script on your broadcast tonight, there'll be a storm of protest that'll start your ears ringing. Don't worry. I'm not going to use it. As a matter of fact, if listener reaction becomes too great, I may have to go so far as to give you the can. I've already told you I... I hate to have to do it, Chuck, but after all, I've got the station and its policies to think of. You'd probably have a tough time getting another job. Yeah, yeah, I probably would. Now, suppose we cut out the double talk and you give me the pitch? Suppose that did happen, Chuck. Suppose I did have to fire you. And I would if you used that script. What do you think would happen? Let's not try to find out. I'll tell you what I think would happen. You're a pretty important guy. Your opinion carries a lot of weight. The communists know that. So? So sooner or later, you'd be approached. Maybe offered a job on some other station. They'd have a well-worked-out plan wherein you could be of service to the cause. I'm still hazy on this, Pappy, but if you think that I'm... Wait till I finish, will you, please? Now, if that should happen, you'd be in a position to put your finger on Mr. Big. 
Mr. Big. The FBI knows there's a big man here in L.A., a very big man. Maybe a high government official who's head of the communists. They want to know who he is. And they think I can look in him? It's a chance. That I'm not going to take. What do you take me for, Pappy? It might be weeks or even years before I could pull that chestnut out of the fire. I might never do it. In all that time, I wouldn't have a friend in the world. I'd be despised by everyone. But if you succeeded in doing the job, you'd uh, have performed a service for your country that may be measured in human lives and freedom and a way of life we want to keep in operation. It's a thankless job. It might be, except to those who are close to you, like myself and Carol Curtis. After it's over, she'd know. After it's over? Do you mean that even Carol wouldn't No be one's going to know about this, Chuck, but myself and the FBI. It's got to look like the real McCoy. You sound as if you expect me to do it. I do. Oh, you do? Well, get this through, you It's a pretty a... good country, Chuck. Let's do what little we can to keep it that way. You've exposed plenty of other rackets. Why not this one? Is it because you don't like the idea of being inconvenienced a little? Now, wait a minute. I never said anything... You've had everything your own way before with the police department behind you and the station behind you and every honest citizen in town behind you. Now that you've got a toughie coming up, what are you going to do? Chicken out? Why, you old goat out... (laughs) Uh, Don't let anyone tell you you're not a salesman because you're not. I just happen to like you, that's all. Which means you'll do it. Which means I'll do it, Pappy. But only under the condition that if I'm stoned out of town, you'll give me my job back when I bring you Mr. Big's ears. Well, I made the broadcast, and the storm of protest began to come in almost at once. Studio phones were ringing before my 15 minutes were up. Carol Curtis was waiting for me when I got back to my office. This, I knew, was going to be the worst ordeal of all. I was glad it was first and would be over quickly. Yes, that's right, Mary. Hold the calls until I let you know. Hi, Glamour What are you holding the calls for? I want to talk to you. Okay, go ahead and talk. I heard the broadcast. Naturally, it's one of the jobs you paid for. What's behind it, Chuck? Behind what? You know what I'm talking about. You know what those telephone calls were about? You didn't mean any of those things you mentioned while you were on the air, did you? Of course I meant them. But, Chuck, it it, it was red stuff. It was un-American. Don't be silly. It depends how you look at it. Well, at least half the city's looking at it the wrong way. Oh, golly, I'll be glad when it gets to be 11 o'clock. Then you can tell everybody you were kidding. I wasn't kidding. Now, look, you get paid to be my secretary, not my critic. Get over to that typewriter and Stop it, Chuck. I want to know the truth. Did you mean those things you said? Yes, yes, I meant them. A man's got a right to his own opinion, hasn't he? Mm, Not when it smells to high heaven of treason, he hasn't. Freedom of speech doesn't mean you can yell fire in a crowded theater. Fire in a crowded theater, what a comparison. Look, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. Now get out of my hair and go back to work. No. What do you mean, no? I mean that unless you give me some explanation of that broadcast, I'm through. I'm not going to work for a red lover. Oh, you're not. We'll we'll get... Oh. Hello, Pappy. I've been outside listening to most of this conversation. I don't like it. Chuck, what's your answer? Answer to what? To Carol's request for an explanation of your broadcast. She doesn't get it. Neither do you. I say what I please and no one tells me any differently. Now, will you two scram so I can go to work on my 11 o'clock show? Oh, so you think you're a pretty big man, do you? Say anything you please and no one tells you differently. Well, let me tell you something. There isn't going to be any 11 o'clock broadcast by Chuck Morgan. Not on KOP. You're fired. Well, it was a pretty good act. Carol was convinced, all right. 
I don't believe I'll ever forget the expression of disbelief and horror and hurt on her face when I walked out of that office. It gave me a queer feeling of hopelessness, as though I'd been convicted of a crime I hadn't committed and lost the respect and love of the one person who was most important in my life. Which, of course, was more or less true. But I didn't have much time to think about it right then. Even though only ten minutes had elapsed since I'd finished that broadcast, there was a small and angry crowd gathered at the entrance of the fenced-in parking lot. They were waiting for me. A studio cop was holding them back. This was worse than I expected. Wasn't going to be easy to take. I walked over to my car and got in. The crowd at the gate was getting bigger. Another cop had arrived. I decided if I were going to get out of there with my whole hide, I'd better be now. I started up and headed for the gate, moving fast in second gear. The cops opened a hole and I headed for it. Then I saw a woman break into the path of my headlights and I had to slow down. Someone pulled her back into the crowd, but I'd almost stopped. And something came sailing through the air. I weren't equipped with unbreakable glass, and I would have been knocked silly. It made me mad. I rammed on the brake stop within ten feet and got out. All right, you bums, come and get it. That was a mistake. It taught me a lesson. They didn't come and get it. They came and got me. I was taken home in an ambulance and left nursing my wounds by a couple of unsympathetic interns. At 11 o'clock, I snapped on the radio. Pappy Mansfield came on what ordinarily would have been my last broadcast of the day with a special announcement. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is John Mansfield, president of KOP Broadcasting Company. I have an announcement to make that will interest you all. Charles Chuck Morgan was dismissed from his duties as a newscaster on this station early this evening. Most of you know why. For those of you who don't, I'll tell you why. Charles Morgan is a communist. He admitted it early this evening. And this station will have no part of... Pappy sounded convincing. Too convincing. I began wondering if when the time came he'd be able to convince people I was a loyal American citizen and loved being one. That hopeless, not-belonging feeling swept over me again. And it grew worse during the next few days. I hoped that Carol might phone. But she didn't. I tried calling a few of my friends just to feel them out and got a brush off in every case. But I didn't realize how seriously I was ostracized until I began looking for a job. That was a plan for me to look for a job and get one if I could. I naturally started in on the other radio stations. It's no use, Mr. Morgan. Mr. Adams told me if you showed up around here to have you thrown out. You got a nerve coming around here, Morgan? Get out! Are you nuts, Morgan? Think I want to lose every advertiser I have by hiring a red? Now, wait a minute. Won't he even talk to me? Well, that took care of the radio stations. Pappy should feel proud of the job he'd done on me. So next, I went to work in the newspapers. Only this time, I decided to save myself a lot of humiliation by using the phone. The secretaries of the first two publishers I called gave me a fast brush. I expected the same from the third. The Los Angeles Weekly News Ledger. But I didn't get it. This was a surprise. The Ledger, a conservative weekly news magazine, was owned by a man named Travers Bullard. 
Bullard, a powerfully built, lantern-jawed man, had the reputation for fine principles and square dealings. When the secretary told him I was on the wire, he sent back word he'd like to have me come over for a talk. This was the first sympathetic piece of dialogue I'd had in more than a week. It sounded so good, I turned into an eager beaver. I got down to the ledger office in less than an hour, cooled my heels in an outside waiting room for another hour, and then was ushered in to see Travers Bullard. Hello, Mr. Bullard. Hello, Morgan. So you're looking for a job, are you? I sure am. Not used to hanging around doing nothing. It's not good for men. No, that's right. Still feel the same way you did about things when you made that broadcast last week? Now, look, Mr. Bullard, if you're going to hold that against... Answer the question. All right. I'll answer it. Yes, I feel the same way. I thought you might. That's why I asked you to come down here. Oh? Yeah. I wanted to tell you face to face what a low-down, sneaking rat you are. I wanted to remind you that America is better off without dirty, stupid traitors like yourself. That I'm going to do everything in my power to see that you, and all like you, are thrown out on your ear. You're like so many others, Morgan. You take advantage of all the fine things that America has to offer. You come to accept these things as your rightful heritage, and it never occurs to you that it's your responsibility to help keep that heritage intact. Instead, you turn to some stinking, small-minded philosophy that isn't worth the powder to blow it. That's why I asked you down here, Morgan, to tell you what I thought and to do this. Just for the record, I'd like to say that if you're an American citizen, enjoying the privileges that America has to offer, you're lucky. For the first time in my life, I was deprived of my heritage. And therefore, for the first time, I was knowing its real worth. Freedom of speech. Freedom from fear. A sense of belonging. Of knowing that I was a part of this great America. That what I said was important. That as an individual, I was needed and wanted not a sheep that instinctively and blindly followed a leader. Now I was deprived of these blessings. I was on the outside, looking in. I was the man without a country, hated, despised, rejected by the free society I loved. It was tough. I thought that if I ever got back my self-respect, I'd never again complain about anything that was American. One night, I was eating dinner in a joint down in Lower Vine Street. May I sit down? Hmm? Oh, yeah, sure. But you better wait a minute. I want you to know who I am first. You might change your mind. <laughs> I know who you are. You're Chuck Morgan. Yeah, that's right. Still want to sit down? Of course. You look so lonesome and forlorn sitting here by yourself. <laughs> I guess that about describes that I am lonesome and forlorn. Have a drink? No, no, thank you. This is unbelievable. You have no friends? No. I'm poison to everybody I used to know. Then perhaps you'd like to meet some new friends? Yeah, sure. <laughs> now, look, don't waste your time, miss. I tell Just you... Just call me Maria. Okay, Maria. Don't waste your time. No one wants any part of me. I think perhaps you are wrong. Yeah? Well, then you don't read the papers. Oh, yes. I read the papers every day. And listen to the radio, too. Especially the news broadcasts on KOP. Oh. 
I see. Then, if you are sure that you do see, perhaps you would like to join me and some of my friends at a small gathering we are having. When? This evening. I'm sure you'll find many sympathetic people among those present. Well, that sounds like fun. Shall we go? We drove out to a small stucco house on a side street off Washington Boulevard in Culver City. There were a half dozen people inside. Nice, ordinary-looking people. They all shook hands with me warmly. Nobody said anything about the broadcast that got me fired. In fact, nothing much of anything happened. Around 11 o'clock, the meeting broke up and I drove Maria home. The next day, I met her for lunch. And two nights later, we attended another meeting. This time, it was at a house in Glendale. None of the same people were there. But this new bunch were just as friendly. One of them was a guy named George Zerbe. And he gave me my first inkling of what the score was. Nice bunch of people, don't you think, Mr. Morgan? Call me Chuck. Yeah, that's well. How are things going with you? Lousy. Kind of tough getting a job when you don't happen to think along the lines of certain people, huh? <laughs> it's murder. Need any dough? Yeah, yeah, I could use a few bucks. Here's a hundred. And uh, don't worry about paying it back. Well, uh, thanks. Forget it. Ever think of leaving L.A.? Well, I may have to if I don't get a break pretty soon. How about the East Coast? It's okay. There's a couple of radio stations there that could use a good newscaster with the uh, right ideas. Well, they hire me, though. Every station in the country knows about me being fired. It could be arranged. I see. How about Doe? You could practically name your own figure. If you obeyed orders. Who'd be giving the orders? The big man himself. When do I get to meet him? Maria will let you know. Well, this was it. Apparently, my indoctrination period was about over. Now I knew I'd been closely watched. I guess that my telephone lines had been tapped. And I congratulated myself enough having attempted to get in touch with Pappy or anyone else. I guess it was a genuine sense of loneliness that I'd felt that made my act pay off. Well, three nights later, Maria and I went to the Vine Street Derby for dinner. It's been a long time since I've eaten here. In the East, you will be able to go many places and hold your head up. Oh, you know about that. <laughs> I know about many things. I'm uh, waiting for the answer to one. Yes. You will be home tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock? Mm, could be arranged. Someone going to call? Perhaps. The big man? Let us speak of him as the leader. And by the way, you will be one of the few who know his identity. Well, that must mean that uh, the job he has for me must be pretty important. Extremely so. You must be plenty sure I'm the real thing. The leader does not make mistakes. You have been carefully checked. Good. I'll be glad to get started. Incidentally, do I know uh, the leader? You know, I, I don't want to get too much of a shock. You will be shocked. Then I do know him, eh? You know him very well. Ah, well, that's very interesting. Well, until tomorrow night, then, a toast to the leader and my new job. The next day was the longest I'd ever lived. It was hard to believe that the ordeal of the past few weeks was nearly over. 
that almost as soon as tomorrow I'd be able to sit in front of a microphone at KOP and tell the world that I was an American and glad of it. By 6.30, I was so nervous my hands were trembling. I went into the kitchen and poured myself a straight shot. I was still there when the door buzzer sounded. Well, here it was. I got up, feeling a sense of anticipation that was almost eerie. Then I forgot that, forgot everything, in fact, but the job at hand, and crossed to the door. I knew the man who was standing there all right. Knew him very well indeed. It was Pappy Mansfield. Pappy, what the devil? Never mind that now. We're going to hide. Hide? Do you realize that... I realize everything. Get me out of sight in a hurry. Okay, come in. In there. Keep away from the windows. Good deal. See you later. Yeah. See you later. You bet he'd see me later, the old goat. Didn't he realize he almost loused up two weeks of work on my part? I didn't have much time to think about it. Less than two minutes later, the buzzer sounded again. This time, I felt it was going to be the McCoy. Hello, Chuck. Travers Bullard. Surprised, eh? Yeah, yeah, I thought that you... Uh, sorry about that crack on the jaw, my boy. But I had to make sure you were convinced I wasn't the leader. You convinced me, all right. And you convinced me and the other members of our little group that you weren't working a gag. You'll make a good member of the party, son. We're glad to have you with us. Thanks. Now, let's get down to business, shall we? You'll find all your instructions in this envelope. In two days, you'll leave for New York. One of our agents will meet you at the airport. Anything else in the envelope? Uh, one of the first things you'll have to learn, my boy, is not to ask questions. Just obey orders. But since you're new to the organization, I'll let you in on a few things. That envelope is loaded with information about the future plans of a couple of our biggest airplane plants. You mean that you... But how? The Los Angeles Weekly News Ledger is a big and powerful magazine, my boy. And a man as well trusted as I, well, there are ways. Now then... Travers Bullard. Well, this is a day I never expected to see. Mansfield. Morgan, did you... I mean, for two weeks we tried to trip you up. No, I don't believe it. Our organization is too perfect. We never make mistakes. You've made one Bullard a butte. All the evidence we need to put you where you belong is contained right here in this envelope. No, you'll never expose me. Never. I've worked too hard. There's too much at stake. Watch him, Chuck. He's got a gun. Yes, I see he has. That makes things even. The man behind him has one, too. You can't fool me with that one. It's too old and corny. Now stand over there, both of you. Suit yourself, Bullard. If you figure that dying's better than prison. Look out, Pappy! It was quite a fight. Pappy had tripped over a rug, and Bullard, suspecting a trick, had swung on him, which was my cue to repay with interest that crack on the jaw he'd given me down at the ledger office. Bullard, however, was a powerful man, and it took a lot of doing to get him under control. His gun went off in the fracas, but it didn't hurt anybody. He's still alive. Those of you who listen to my broadcast know where he is now. He's got a private room in a big gray building with iron bars on the window. Pappy and I got back to the station around 10 o'clock. Here's your office, Pappy. Now tell me, what was the idea of almost lousing up my good work by showing up at the apartment five minutes before Bullard arrived? Because it occurred to me at the last minute that two witnesses to his dialogue would be more effective at a trial, especially with you having seemingly gone over to the Reds. Yeah, I see, you're right. 
Well, as it turned out, the information contained in the envelope would have been enough. That's right. Trouble is, I didn't know there were going to be an envelope. Well, anyhow, it's okay now. Oh, uh, she's waiting for you in your office. Good night. So long, Pappy. It's good to be back. See you. Hi, Glamour Puss. Hi, Chuck. Your script's ready for the 11 o'clock broadcast. Want to read it over? Oh, I don't know. What's in it? The facts about you exposing Travis Bullard. No kidding. How'd you know about that? Pappy phoned me. Did he now? Mm-hmm. I see you're all in a sweat about having me back. I knew you'd be back. No kidding. How'd you know that? Well, I figured it out. You went ramming out of here that night Pappy wrote your script and yelling at me to write another. And then you came back and said you were going to use the one Pappy wrote. Oh, I'm not so dumb. No, as a matter of fact, you're nowhere near as dumb Don't as... you say it. Don't you dare. If you tell me once more I'm not as dumb as I look, I'll I'll bring you with this typewriter. <laughs> you know something, Glamour What? You're a ham. Why, you're you... You're putting on an act. What you really want to do is bawl and fling your arms around my neck and tell me you're glad to have me back. I don't. I don't at all. I... I... Oh, Chuck! <laughs> okay, as bad as I hate two friends and neighbors, it's going to be time to say goodbye till next time and hope y'all will come back and watch the show with me, listen with me. I hope you'll forgive me, folks, for the way that I've... I had to take some medication earlier and it's... It's made my mouth dry, and it's kind of made my processes a little bit slow. So uh, I hope you'll forgive me for that. And I look forward to seeing you next week. I don't know what I'm going to do for next week yet, but we'll come up with something, and I'll see you then.